Yeah, I've had a lot of students who've come through from other flight schools that say that, you know, they have 40, 50 hours of flight time and they've never opened a book. And that blows my mind because how do you understand what it is that you're doing flying? It's not just about moving the sticks. There's a lot more that is involved with it. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by Helicopter Aircrew. Each episode, we explore the world of helicopters with the people that fly and support them. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to the show website at rotarywingshow.com. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. G'day again, and I hope you have had a, a great week wherever in the world you are listening in from. It's right in the middle of the school holidays here in Queensland, Australia, so I've been keeping pretty busy with my little people, getting them out of the house and out on day trips, so no flying for me. Now, just before the school holidays started, and it was also just before the last episode of the show went out and went live, I recorded a, a webinar with Tyson Pierce, who's one of the other instructors here at Redcliffe. Now, Tyson flew Chinooks in the Australian Army, and the presentation goes for close to about an hour, and we're just going through some of the characteristics and stats of the Chinook, and they're just such a, an awesome machine, looking at the history and just the capability and things they can do. And that recording should be up on YouTube in the next couple of days. And Tyson's probably going to kill me for this, but if you're following the show on Twitter, what I'll do is I'll tweet out a link to that video during the week. If that's something that you're interested in checking out, jump on Twitter and, and check out the show there. All right, so webinars are just one of those marketing tools that the aviation industry just doesn't use, or if they do, it's really, really uh, used poorly. But they do give you a heap of leverage because you can sort of get that message out, you know, one to many people and record it and package it up and use it in different ways. So if you do need to sell your services in any way and you're involved in the marketing of your helicopter company, then please check out the show's sponsors for today's episode over at trainmorepilots.com. Now, today in the show, we're heading back to the Northern Hemisphere and over to New York State in the US. Heather Howley operates a, a flying school and a charter company called Independent Helicopters. And we chat with Heather about how she got her start in the industry and how she found herself running her own helicopter company at what was a, a pretty young age for most people to be thinking about that. So let's jump over and meet Heather. Heather Howley, thank you so much for joining us on the Rotary Wing Show. So welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. All right, Heather, so can you just give us a, a quick idea about where in the world you're operating from? And then we'll talk a bit about, you know, how you got there and, and that sort of career path you went through and, and all the bits and pieces that go with that. Well, I'm in the US, uh, in New York, about 20-minute flight, 30-minute flight north of New York City, about an hour and a half drive, pretty centrally located in New York uh, at Stewart International Airport. Okay, and um, I'm looking at the the map there, and like there's a heap of stuff up that top. Uh, and I guess people aren't familiar with the US, which seems funny, but with the mm-hmm. the top right uh, sort of part of the US. Mm-hmm. Yep, all, all kinds right. of stuff to do up here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you obviously own a helicopter company. We'll get into that. But did you always want to fly, or what did you want to do out of school? No, actually, growing up my entire life, I wanted to work with animals, and um, I went to school for biology. Got my biology degree and um, decided when I finished that I was going to take a semester abroad. And it ended up just being two months. So I traveled in Europe, most of Western Europe, with a girlfriend. And uh, we were originally going to backpack the whole thing and ended up taking, you know, these small little puddle jumpers everywhere, little airplanes. And at that point, I realized that I really love traveling. 
And that as much as I love biology, it wasn't going to allow me to travel as much as I wanted to. So when I got back to the States, that was August of 2003, I decided that I wanted to figure out how to fly. And so I ended up packing, I lived in New York at the time, packed up everything I had, sold whatever I could, and I sold my car, everything, had $1,000 to my name with a box truck, a 10-foot box truck that I'd rented, drove out to California. And uh, (laughs) I ended up with an apartment, a job, and a car all within the first week in California, all with $1,000 in a box truck, all because I really wanted to figure out how to fly. And, And don't ask me why San Diego, California, I really have no idea why I decided to go there. But ended up there. And for a year and a half, I worked doing my biology stuff, ended up working doing stem cell research in the basement of the Salk Institute. And it was awesome, but it was in the basement and there was no light and I really didn't really enjoy it. I just didn't know what to do for my next step. Especially so, so you well and surely have been bitten by the flying bug this stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was more the traveling, you know, that I really enjoyed. And I just, I didn't know what that meant, you know, like moving forward, what I had to do. Yeah, so flying and traveling, et cetera. And then uh, I had started taking some ground school courses at the local community college because they were free for residents. So taking some ground school. And there was a female instructor there. Um, She was a captain of a 777, really awesome woman. She was in the military, flew helicopters and airplanes. And she was just talking to the class saying, you know, if this is what you want to do career-wise, you really should look into helicopters because they're more stable. You know, the industry is more stable. You make more money to start with. The opportunities are just far greater than they are for airplanes because if you want to do an airplane career, you're starting at $20,000 a year, you know, flying little commuter airplanes. And you have to put in a lot of time to make any decent money. So it was literally a week after that, there was an ad on the radio, you know, come for a free helicopter ride. And it was with Silver State Helicopters. And I know that everyone in the US, at least, you know, doesn't like Silver State Helicopters. They've since been bankrupt. So I went down for my seminar and got my free helicopter ride. And I was hooked instantly. Like it didn't, whatever I had to do, whatever piece of paper I had to sign, I was doing whatever it took to fly a helicopter because I loved it. It was just, it clicked. It finally something clicked and that was what I was supposed to be doing. So you signed up on the spot? I did. Yeah, I signed up and uh, I had to get student loans out, which thankfully they had financing arranged, you know, with that company. So I called up my mom and I said, Mom, I found helicopters. I really want to do this. And uh, it's going to take me, you know, two years to finish up and $70,000. And she goes, Heather, this is a mistake. You're going to kill yourself. It's not in our bloodline. What are you thinking? You just got your biology degree. She went on and on and on with so many excuses as to why I shouldn't do it. And I said to her, I said, Mom, you can either co-sign alone with me or I'll find someone else who will. I'm doing this. I don't care what you say. <laughs> and God bless my mother. I love her to death. You know, she she ended up co-signing alone. It was a little bit of a headache, but we did it. And uh, 20 months later, I became a fl- flight instructor and had six job offers across the U.S. I could have gone anywhere and uh, decided to go back home. So I came back to New York. And have you taken your mom flying since? I have. Yeah. She was my first passenger. So when I was first training, I was in San Diego. And then to finish up my training, I ended up going to Colorado. And uh, she came out from New York to come and pick me up to help drive me back to New York when I accepted the job. And so she came out, she flew in and uh, I took her to the airfield where I was based out of. And I had her go sit with the girls in the office and have her cup of coffee and hang out. And uh, it's a really funny story. So she comes out to the helicopter because she didn't know what I was doing. She assumed I was saying goodbye to everyone. And she comes out and I take her coffee and I give it to the other people that are standing there. And I take her by both hands. I go, mom, we're going to go for a helicopter ride. She's like, she's pulling away from me now at this point. No, no, I can't go for a helicopter ride. So I I took her and walked her over to the helicopter, sat her down, buckled her in, had her hold on to her seatbelt for dear life and uh, closed the door so she couldn't get out. 
I got in and I go, mom, listen, they trust me to teach other people how to fly a helicopter. I'm sure that we'll be fine. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she was, she was my first passenger. So we pick it up off the ground and she screamed, which was hysterical. And, uh, you know, I told her if if it's really that bad, we'll turn around and come back. But I think you're really going to like it. And uh, she did. We went all through the canyons up and down and oh, it was amazing. And she loved it. So she's been the person who's gone with me the most, I'd say, you know, out of anyone, she's been my most frequent passenger. So your biggest fan. Yeah, my biggest fan. So you did the the flying training and you went straight into uh, instructing. Was that the same? So did you finish in Colorado? So where did you do the instructing first off? In New York. I, I was first an instructor in New York. So I did um, my private and commercial in San Diego and then my instrument CFI and I in Colorado and then started working in New York. Okay. So what was those early uh, sort of flying lessons like? Like uh, what? how many hours did you have on your belt when you were doing the, the training for other folks? I think I had maybe 220 hours when I first started instructing. And it, it's funny because you go in, I, I was 20, how old was I? 24, I think probably 24 at the time. And um, I remember just like, I, I was the only instructor when we first started. It was with another Silver State location here in New York. And I remember going in my first day and there were 30, you know, basically all men, students, all older than me, all looking at me to teach them. And I'm like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? And uh, so that was a little nerve wracking in the beginning. And then when I first started flying with students, they were very good. You know, most of the students were very open and receptive, you know, and, and they put their lives in your hands, you know. So it was um, a huge responsibility for someone of my age, you know, at that point and uh, my maturity level. But it was really fun. I really enjoyed it. And uh, it's really great to see people grow, you know, as you're teaching them. And so I kind of went in with this, I guess, overconfidence as a brand new flight instructor that I can do anything and I'll teach you whatever and it'll be great. And I've been humbled a few times, but <laughs> it's been good. And that was in Robbie's or what type of aircraft was yep, that in? Yep. All Robinson. Yep. R- R-22s and R-44s. Okay. So you did um, a bit of flying instruction. There was a bit of charter and things like that as well, or was it mainly just the instruction at that just point? Just flight instruction. Yeah. Um, I did flight instruction with Silver State for about six months, then they went bankrupt. And I worked for another company. When I worked for the other company for about eight months, I had done some charter and some flight instruction with them. The same thing in the New York area then? Yep. Yep. New York area. And again, all in, at that point, it was our 44s. Okay, excellent. All right, so what happened next? (laughs) (laughs) I know, I'm like, I feel like I'm talking a lot. So when that company obviously was in business, so Silver State went bankrupt in February of 2008, I worked for another company for eight months. It was even, I don't know, it must have been eight months. It was September of 2008 that I started my business. And the way that it happened was actually not intended. I had gotten an R22 and I said to the company I was working with, I said, you know, there's all these Silver State students who are now you know, without an instructor and without an aircraft, I'd really love to help them. I think it would increase your business. And they said, okay, great. Go ahead. You get the R22 and we'll add it to our flight line and we'll work together. I said, perfect. They said, send us your resignation letter so we can work as business partners. I don't know anything about it. Okay, sure. Why not? 24 at the time. And uh, so I, I send them my resignation letter. I signed the lease for the R22 that I got. It was an old Silver State helicopter. So I was very familiar with it. And, uh, you know, had no students. I was just planning on, you know, tailing off of what they had done. And as soon as I sent them my resignation letter, I never heard from them again. Oh, and no. So, so he, yeah. uh, he left, <laughs> paying least figure on a uh, on a helicopter yeah. and out in your own. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, thank God for Matt Spitzer at the time. He, he fully believed in what I was doing and even more so than I did at the time. And so I ended up, I didn't advertise. I had a website. That was about all I had. And someone found me on the internet and uh, he said, you know, you're closer than the school I'm using right now. Can I fly with you? And I said, 
well, sure. And so he ended up prepaying 10 hours of flight time for that first month. And that paid for the, for the lease of the helicopter for the first month. And that's basically how I got started. And it just went from one student to two and three and so on and so on. And I was doubling the business every year for the first, I'd say, four years. And now we're pretty, you know, stationary where we're at. But uh, it was pretty scary there the first two years. You know, I almost lost the business twice. And it's really difficult to run a flight school. Um, it, it costs a lot more money than people think. And the profit margins are very, very small. And so if you're not doing it right and you don't have, you know, enough students, it, it's very easy to lose the business. So it was very difficult and not at all what I intended or expected to have. <laughs> and was it easy enough to, did you have to do, get a, an operating certificate or were you using someone else's? Nope, nope. Um, so I had my flight instructor certificate, obviously, because I was teaching already. And then I had the lease of the aircraft and that's all I needed in order to run the business in the beginning. Now what we're working on is getting the FAA certification for the flight school. But you can run a Part 61 flight school without any of that. It's only when you want to get, you know, government funding that you need to have the FAA certification to have a school and do all that. Okay, fair enough. That's uh, so. Is there a lot of people doing that sort of independent um, sort of operation where they have a helicopter and they're a flight instructor and they they basically put out their own shingle? Yeah, perhaps. Um, I don't know how many, but yeah, there there's a few. I know that there are also people who um, have their flight instructor certificate and then go and fly the student's aircraft. The student may have their own helicopter and they go, they want to fly, so they need a flight instructor. So there's a lot of that going on. Okay, yeah, it's much uh, much tighter and more stringent uh, here in Australia. Mm-hmm. It's definitely, it's very hard actually to, to start something up. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. What type of machines or, or how big the operations are now? What type of aircraft do you have? How many staff do you have? We have two R22s and one R44 and a Frasca simulator. And I have um, two people who work for me, one flight instructor and one who does office. So I'm still doing a lot of the day-to-day you know, flight instructing and flying and, and whatnot. And we were up to two flight instructors plus myself last summer. And then he went away to Army Flight School. So it's just the two of us left now. But my plan is to have another one by the end of this year because it's just gotten to be too much. And then as far as other helicopters, you know, in the next year or two, I'd really love to get a Long Ranger because um, the market's just here for a charter. We're right next to New York City, so why not? Have you still got two locations or have you folded back into one location now? No, we still have two locations. Okay. So the reason that I opened up in Saratoga Springs, New York, which is about a two-hour drive north or about an hour flight north of where I am now, um, we needed the FAA certification for the, the 141 school and then also the 135, which is the charter. And so the best way to do that was to open a location up in Albany and to deal with the Albany area uh, FAA office. So that's really why we started the second location. And it's been wonderful. You know, summertime is great up there because of the racetrack. So it's really been good. Okay. What's the racetrack for someone who's not familiar with? Well, the, the Saratoga Springs, it's the Saratoga racetrack. And so the horse racing is a huge thing, I guess, um, in the summer. I don't really follow it that much because I'm not into horses as much as other people are. But yeah, there's racetracks down in Long Island, up in Saratoga, Kentucky, et cetera. So the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, all of those kinds of things. And so there's a lot of gambling that goes on with the horses. There's you know bets that are placed on horses, and it's a big deal. A lot of money comes into the area uh, during the race season. So it's really good. Okay. And how do you go, uh, Heather, balancing that role between you know being the, the pilot, the person in the front who's actually doing the day-to-day work, and then putting on that separate hat as a, you know as a chief pilot and as the company owner? Uh, oh, goodness. How do you like? Do you do you find yourself okay? I'm at the desk. I now need to be company owner, and now I need to be the pilot. Or you, you sort of juggling the whole thing all the time. All the time, all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because when I fly, you know, with students, I get a lot of students who are very intimidated flying with me because I am the owner, 
And um, I'm very easygoing. And so that doesn't last very long with students, usually for them being intimidating by me. But um, yeah, it's it's all the time. You're always thinking, you know, what can I do to advertise for the business? What can I do to bring more money in, to bring more students in? And then while you're flying, you know, what kind of rapport do you have with your client, whether it's a student or a photographer or whatever, a ride, et cetera. So it's it's all the time. I don't switch so much between them all. It's all the I just wear them all at the same time. <laughs> Uh, my other role, I, I work with a lot of small business owners, and yeah, they, they see wake up thinking about cash flow and staffing and all those sort of things. It's just a, it's continuous, all the time. Yeah, people are like, oh, you should take a day off. And I'm like, I can't. You're a business owner. You never take a day off. <laughs> That's it. Well, we're talking about business owning and things like that. So uh, you got you've got a fair few awards under your belt, and you do a bit of fundraising too. So we'll talk a bit more about the local flying and things like that. But just to talk a bit more about the company. So we, we didn't actually, I guess, mention the, the company by name there. So it's Independent Helicopters. Mm-hmm. And what's, yep. your, what's your website if folks want to check that out? It's independenthelicopters.com. Very tricky. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's hard. So you, you've had a few awards for the company. And I'm guessing, you know, as far as a, an advertising marketing strategy, it'd be something to go chase as well. I should. You know, I really should do that. And I, I'm, I'm slacking a bit in that respect. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought when I was doing the background check, I thought you had, um, you got, you had a, a couple of awards under your belt. Though. I do. I do. I just don't use them to, to market oh, gotcha. the business yep. very well. Yeah. All right, yeah. well, well, let's give yourself a plug while we do it now then because if you've won the awards, <laughs> you know, we might as well uh, look at them. So what sort of awards have you picked up along the way? Oh, goodness. Um, well, we did the – I had the rising star for, for this area, so a bunch of the assemblymen's and state senates, they uh, they sent me an award for that. Um, I've gotten the 40 under 40. That was up in the Albany area. So those are 40 successful business people under the age of 40. Um, and it was interesting, um, just to go on a tangent for that one, um, that a lot of the people that were there weren't business owners. They were people who work for another company, which I didn't feel was very fair because, you know, to own a business versus working for a business is very different. And so they need to have something separate for that, but that's a whole nother thing. I've also done man, woman of the year for the leukemia and lymphoma society. And, uh, I didn't win that one, but we came really close. The woman who actually won it ran, she got, um, a hundred thousand dollars, which was unbelievable for a fundraiser. What else have I won? There's, there's been a lot. There's been quite a few, so I, I tend to lose track of, of all of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, yeah. that's a good, good the, place to be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And all right, well, the people listening then, let's um, get into the flying bits and pieces then. As a company owner, uh, and, and you said you know, you're know looking at putting someone on towards the end of the year, what sort of things are you looking for in the, the pilots that you're, or even the staff in general that you're bringing into the company? That's a great question. Um, we've kind of become like a little family here. So anyone that comes in has to fit in with the family, obviously. But uh, it's we're very friendly, very open, very understanding, very patient as far as the employees and staff go here. Um, and flight instructors, I'm always looking for people who have an instrument flight instructor certificate and preferably less than 180 pounds. Like I have Matt now who works for me and I love him to death. He's I call him my work husband. He's about 200 pounds and just got his his instrument flight instructor. So he can do some of the work, but I really need some lighter people because of the Robinson. They're so weight restrictive. So it's easier to have a lightweight flight instructor and then the student can be up to 240 pounds, which is the max seat weight. But uh, yeah, most of the flight instructors out there tend to be closer to the 200 mark, which makes it difficult to hire them because there's a lot of heavier students that I don't want to fly with anymore. <laughs> Fair enough. Yep. And yeah, we run the same problems here as yeah, just purely maxing out the weight on on the twenty two. All right, what um, you know, you've obviously been doing the flying training in the USA for a while now. How are things changing uh, in the time from when you started to where you are now? Is the US training industry is it fairly stable? Uh, is there sort of trends happening at the moment? 
I would say in general, general aviation is on the decline. It has been for several years now. And I just noticed it probably last year into this year that, you know, the bubble we were in kind of, you know, popped. And so there's fewer people training now, which makes it difficult, obviously, to run a flight school. And um, the people who are coming and training, it's very expensive. And so they want the most bang for their buck. They want the most attention. They want a very structured program. So a lot of these independent you know, flight instructors that we talked about earlier, they're really out of a job because all they tend to do is fly with the student and not do any ground. So what we pride ourselves on at our school is, is you have a very structured program, which is, again, why we got our 141 certification through the FAA, because we run a ground and flight program concurrently. So it allows a student to, to learn while they're flying, not just get all the flying in and then have to pick up all the ground school. So there's benefits to, to doing both at the same time, I think. And uh, a lot of people tend to miss that. Yeah, the general way in Australia, I guess, would be to try and get as much theory done early with a, you know, mm-hmm. a couple of hours of flying so that when you're reading the books, you've got an idea of what they're talking about. But exactly. uh, yeah, it's um, if you get all the flying out of the road and then have to come back and do the theory, it's, you're basically doubling up on things. Yeah, I've had a lot of students who've come through from other flight schools that say that, you know, they have 40, 50 hours of flight time and they've never opened a book. And that blows my mind because how do you understand what it is that you're doing flying? It's not just about moving the sticks. There's a lot more that is involved with it. So Yeah, that's crazy. Just uh, as a gist for an, an idea of, of costs, how much is it per hour there for you guys? Sure. In the, um, in the R22, we charge three fifty an hour. And I would honestly say that that's probably high across the U.S. Um, I know that some states are higher than me. Some states are much lower. Um, New Hampshire, for example, I think they get 300 or maybe even 275 an hour. So it's so really based on uh, where you are. So it's aircraft, fuel, and, and instructor, all for the 350? Yes. Yep. yep, that's everything. Yeah, in Australia, <laughs> it starts at about 500. Holy cow. Yeah, for 22. It's it's just expensive. Yeah, I get 600 an hour for the R44. So, yeah. Wow. All right, so let's talk about uh, a big thing in the U.S. we don't have here and, and probably other countries don't have is the U.S. Veterans uh, Program. And again, if you look on any website uh, for helicopter training in the U.S., it's it's a feature of the the website. They always mention it. So mm-hmm. what's that uh, What's that program? So um, that goes back to the 141 certification that we just got through the FAA. Um, you need to have that. You need to be an accredited school basically through the FAA before the VA, the Veterans Assistance uh, part of the, the government, will fund you. So what we've been trying to do lately is get the VA approval and then use that to bring in veterans. So the veterans um, actually get their flight training paid for by the government, but there's a lot of requirements that go with that. It's not just, oh, you're a veteran, you get all this money. So there's eligibility, there's how much you're allowed and, and how long you're allowed to have it. So it's really convenient because I think the biggest problem for most students is financing. You know, they, I, always, I used to say it was hovering and, you know, auto rotations, and now it's financing is the hardest part for most students. And uh, so the VA definitely helps with the funding portion of it, uh, strictly for veterans. Or if, I think if you're even a child of a veteran, you're allowed some benefits. So it's a really great program. Does that push the, the price of the training up for everyone else? Like the fact you've got, uh, you know, what, what percentage of students going through uh, U.S. training schools would be on the veteran program versus self-funding? It depends on your location. I know that there's a school in Arizona that I'd say almost 60, maybe even 80% of their students are veterans. And so there's fewer and fewer civilians who are doing the flight training. For us up here, we've got way more civilians. I would say, you know, 90% of our students are self-pay and then the rest are are veterans, but hopefully that'll change. (laughs) Yeah, like it's uh, pretty attractive, yeah, if if you can get uh, that funding for it. Yeah. Well, it makes it better for the business and for the student, really. Yeah. Flying training-wise, 
just in the time of being an instructor, what do you see? You just mentioned a couple of those things, you know, hovering in autos and, and finance. Uh, but what are the, the sort of common mistakes or the, the, the things you see people struggle with as they go through their training? It's usually very common. Most people have the same mistakes. The first being that they're looking way too close to the helicopter. So they're looking at the ground and that affects them in every maneuver, not just hovering. So what I try and teach most of my students, all of my students, is to keep your eye out on the horizon. Know what level attitude feels like. Because if you can maintain a level attitude, you can control the aircraft in any stage of flight, whether it's hovering, approach, auto rotation, et cetera. Auto rotations are also very difficult for most people. And I think it's just the fear of the ground rush. And um, you know, if, if it's taught correctly the first time, it's not as scary. I can't tell you how many students have come in from other schools and you know, the instructor slams the collective down and you know, whips the helicopter around. And that's really scary for someone who's never been in an auto rotation. And they have no idea what to expect. And all they are thinking is, oh, my God, you turned the engine off, when that really isn't the case. So um, education, you know, before you go up is a huge thing. But then also knowing that you can do it a little slower for training in the beginning and keeping your eye on the horizon is, I always go back to that. It's always keep a level attitude because you can always deviate slightly from that to get, you know, whatever desired result you want. So that's usually the, the two big ones is level attitude and don't look at the ground. <laughs> that's it. And with the auto rotations, do you guys do um, many touchdowns or what's the sort of, like is a touchdowns a big focus? No, it's not a big focus, but we do them. Um, I tend to reserve them for either people who are only doing a private license and then they're going to go get their own aircraft or for flight instructors. So they're not usually done um, early on in training just because it can be a little scary for most people. But um, I find it a very complex maneuver for beginners. So I tend to reserve that towards later on in the training. And uh, flight instructors, you have to do it because it's part of the exam. I actually like fold-down autos. I think that they're easier to do than power recovery autos. So it just you have to be careful with some students because they freeze on the controls and you can really create a lot of damage to the aircraft. Yeah, that's why I look at it as a risk-versus-reward type thing because uh, yeah, it, it is training. The last thing you want to do is wrap up a machine and train. Exactly, exactly. The area you guys are flying in, is it, you know, again, I have no idea of the terrain in, the, in that part of the U.S. Is it is it fairly flat? Is it, uh, have you got mountain ranges nearby? It's funny. I don't call them mountains just because I, I trained in Colorado and those are mountains out there. But uh, it's hilly for sure. I think the highest mountain that we have around here is maybe 6,000 feet, maybe 4,000 but in general, I mean, we start at 500 feet above sea level at the airport I'm at, and then there's some hills around that maybe go up to 2,000, and then you can go down to the city and it's sea level. So it's a little bit hilly. Okay. And what are the big uh, landmarks nearby? <laughs> um, Manhattan, obviously, is, is yep. a big one for us. A lot of people love going down there. We also have West Point, which is the military academy here. Um, it's super old, a lot of history there. It's a really impressive castle-like building, so that's cool. Um and then obviously the Hudson River, which is also a, a good historic landmark. And uh, my favorite actually is the Shuangung Mountain Range, which is very hard to, to say. It's a, easy to spell, but hard to say. And so that's really neat because up there, especially during the fall season when all the leaves change color, it's beautiful. And the waterfalls coming through it and the little lakes on top of it, it's really, really awesome place to go. So I don't know if it was Facebook or Twitter, but you posted some photos recently of the uh, the fall flights. And uh, yeah, it's just the, the yellow and the oranges all over the hills. I love there. fall. Yeah, fall is my favorite season. It's just, and especially at sunset. Like if you can get a fall foliage flight, like right at sunset with the sun, you know, lighting up everything even more orange, it's spectacular. Like I, there's no other word for it. Tops. What's it like as you're flying around Manhattan? Because you know you see it on TV and things like that, <laughs> but then you see all the operators, you know, doing tours off the, uh, I guess that you call them barges or, or uh, the floating docks on the side of the, the river there. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, what's the airspace like? Is it pretty crazy as far as traffic goes? 
it depends on what day and what time. On the weekends, it's insane. It's we're just like at least 20 helicopters up in the air. It's just, it's really, really congested. I really enjoy flying in the city because it is congested. It's a challenge, you know, for most people. And so I, I love that. I love the fast paced, um, crazy environment, but, uh, you've got a corridor that runs down the river that is, um, VFR. So you're, you're self-announced. And, um, then if you want to go over, you know, Manhattan, Central Park towards LaGuardia, et cetera, you have to get permission. And so that's always neat because you can follow the, the Hudson River down all the way down downtown Manhattan and then take the East River up and never have to talk to anybody, you know, just self-announcing. And then if you want to cut across Central Park or whatever, you have to get permission. But it's just, it never gets old. I've been down there, God, a gazillion times. And I still love it every single time. In fact, I just posted photos of Manhattan, I think yesterday, because I did a photo flight down there last night. And it's... um. It never gets old. It's always different. It's always changing. They're always building something new and the light hits it differently every time. And it's just fun. It's a challenge, but it's fun and it's busy and I love it. <laughs> is there any places to land or is it like, is there heliports or how's, what's the yep. setup there? Yeah, there's heliports. Um, they have one on the west side, one on the east side of Manhattan and one downtown. And then they actually just put up a new one um, down by Jersey City, which is sort of across from Ellis Island there and um, another one down in Jersey. So there's there's quite a few down there. And they all charge the same amount, so you can land there or LaGuardia. It's all the same. Okay, and they're just private operations, or are they yeah. sort of okay? Yeah, yeah, privately owned heliports, which amazes me because the amount of money they must make is insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially when you got tours going in all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, is Boston fairly close as well? Boston's about a two-hour flight from where I am here. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm a I'm a Suits fan. <laughs> <laughs> so I think they're out of there. Now let's look at some of these other organizations that you've done some work with or been involved with. And um, again, we had a previous guest, um, Lorena Knapp, who, who was, she's flying in Alaska and she's involved in some of the, the female pilot groups as well. So can you tell us a bit about, the, uh, you know, Whirly Girls, your experience there and, and other sort of groups you've been involved with? I feel like a slacker with those, actually. Um, I'm a member of Whirly Girls 99s, Women in Aviation, all those. I love the Whirly Girls because it's more helicopter focused. And I have to admit that I only get to see them when I go to the big conferences. I don't usually have enough time to go to the member events that they have. Um, but they're great. You know, they're, they're a huge advocate for women in aviation, obviously, specifically helicopters. And um, there's always job opportunities that they post. And, you know, it's it's a great community. And I wish that I had more time to be a part of it because I tend to do my own thing most of the time. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're great women. And we all support each other. I don't think I've ever met another female helicopter pilot who's, you know, trying to you know, push you out of the way and take your job or anything like that. We are super competitive, I'm not going to lie, but we tend to really support each other as well. All right. And, and the Girls with Wings, is that I another program? That one. Yeah, that one? I, love, I love the Girls with Wings. So Girls with Wings, it actually got me involved with Girl Scouts as well, which is another group here. Girls with Wings was started by Linda Meeks. Love her. She's great. And um, it's basically for like middle school, maybe high school girls, maybe even elementary age girls, where I'd say nine through 13 year olds. And so you go in and you teach them a little bit about aviation, the phonetic alphabet, you know, flight plans, et cetera, just to open up their minds a little bit and then show them that aviation isn't just a male dominated field. And really just to let them explore, you know, and see that there's other opportunities out there. Cause I know here in the States, I, I would have never thought of being a pilot growing up. I didn't, you know, and, and most girls don't, they see it as a, as a boy thing. They're like, Oh, well, that's what boys do. And so with Girls with Wings, I got involved with the Girl Scouts, and now I'm running a program with the Girl Scouts where they come twice a year, and it's different groups, different girls that come in, and we teach them about, you know, the ground school, what to know about a helicopter, how it flies, you know, what the industry is like, 
And then we take them in the simulator and they actually get to fly it and learn, you know, what the controls do and, and how to fly a helicopter. And then I'm working on getting the program where they can actually fly in the helicopter with us for a quick lesson. And is it, have you had a story of anyone go all the way through, you know, maybe not from that program, yeah. but have you been, you know, there's a 777 pilot for you. Is mm-hmm. there, is there pilots floating around now where you were that person for them? Uh, yeah, actually, I have a, a girl now who came to me, goodness, I think it was three years ago now, maybe even longer. I think it was three years ago. She came and, and she did the ground school through the university that I was running. And um, she managed to go from nothing all the way through to flight instructor and then was working as a flight instructor for a while. Now she's doing tours down in Manhattan. And uh, I'm very proud of her. She's done a great, great job in her her career. She's only 22. I think she might be turning 23 this year. And so we still keep in contact, but she's great. So out of all the women that I've trained, I think I've only done about five. And she's been the most successful one out of all of them. Oh, yeah, you're passing that on. And uh, yeah, that's good to see. If you could go back in time, Heather, when you were first learning or when you were doing the instructing, like what are some of the big things you picked up along the way that you just wish someone had told you or that you knew about beforehand? Oh, that's a tough one. Yep. When I was learning, let's see if I could go back in time. Yeah, you know, my first solo. <laughs> I wish that someone had told me on my first solo that it was going to pick up as crazy as it did. Being, I'm 120 pounds, you know, back then I may have been, you know, 115, so not that much different. And uh, when I picked up off the ground the first time, I had a bunch of ballast in with me. I had about 75 pounds of extra weight just in case. And uh, I was not anticipating the nose high attitude and the right roll essentially that I got. And so when I finally did get it off the ground, I swirled around quite a bit and then maintained control of it. But I wish someone had told me that, um, explained it a little bit more, you know, before my first solo. And other than that, like maybe just have a little more confidence in myself because I definitely lacked that going through. I was very timid, very nervous. Um, and now as a flight instructor, I don't know, I would, I would say not to laugh at my students so much, <laughs> which sounds funny because I do. I tend to, um, I joke around a lot when yep. I fly. I'm just very comfortable in the aircraft. And so some people I think take a little bit of offense to that when I laugh at them. And so I always apologize, you know, like, I'm sorry if I offend you when I laugh at you, but it's really funny to watch someone try and hover for the first time. I get a really big kick out of that. And I think it breaks the tension as well. So I can't really, you know, complain, but, um, I remember yeah, laying I the hover and, you know, the instructor would take over in between these wild attempts and, and the helicopter would uh-huh. just sit there still and they'd look at you and you'd be talking and you'd be thinking, how can you be sitting there talking to me and the aircraft's not moving? And, uh, I used to get so angry with my flight instructor for that exact same reason. And yeah, it's great. Like, I get to do it to them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Scariest moment with the student? Where should I start? I have a lot of those. Let's see. I'll start in the very beginning, the first one. When I was, uh, we were doing traffic patterns at the local airport and we were on downwind and, um, you know, downwind checks, all your gauges are green, you know, light, lights are out and pull up your carb heat. Well, I had this student who, instead of pulling up the carb heat, took the mixture guard off the oh, mixture no. and almost pulled the mixture up. And thank God I was paying attention like on it. And I dug my nails into his arm so hard. <laughs> the poor guy had nail marks for probably a week because I was about ready to rip his arm off. And uh, he, he didn't pull it. He pulled it a little bit, but that was it. Pushed it back down. The engine didn't quit. We were fine. So that was a little nerve wracking. I don't know if I should even, I'll, you know, I'm going to tell the story despite my, my best, you know, I really probably shouldn't. Um, I had a student who had an accident and um, I had trained him for about five hours. He came from another flight instructor. She had done about 70 hours with him. And she was actually my boss. This is with the other company that I worked with. And um, I was like, oh, he's fine. You know, this was his second solo. We went out, he was in the R44 and we had parked it to get some fuel. And I went inside to use the bathroom. I told him just to top off the auxiliary tank, not the, not both. 
he ended up topping off both and I didn't realize it didn't even look. And, um, so he was still parked, you know, fairly close to the fuel pumps, but not close enough to really do anything. And so he picked up, I wasn't in it with him. He started it up and I had gotten out and, uh, I was standing off behind the fuel pumps and he picked up the helicopter and the nose came up normal. You know, you get a nose high attitude when you're solo, no big deal. And he was staring at the light pole that was behind the fuel pumps. And so he pushes forward to correct. I'm like, okay, good. He's correcting. And he pulled back again and then forward. And he's doing this teeter totter back and forth. And every time he's getting closer and closer to that pole. And, um, I just, I, there was nothing I could do at that point. So he ended up hitting the pole with the rotor blades. And I still remember that sound. Like I can hear it. Like it was yesterday. This was back in 2008. And, uh, I remember running the opposite direction and he ended up pulling back so hard that he chopped off his tail boom and the helicopter spun around towards where I had been, you know, and the, the tail boom started flying towards me. And uh, he ended up landing it, you know, up upright and uh, split the skids and fuel dumping everywhere and horn and light going off. Thank God he didn't hit the fuel pump and thank God he wasn't injured. Uh, we totaled the aircraft though. And that was probably the most scariest thing that has ever happened to me. Yeah, that'd be pretty spectacular. Yeah, not fun. No. All right, Heather, advice for, for new pilots who are trying to get that first job and uh, and get up that, that ladder? Uh, mm. The first job, that's a tough one. Here in the States, you need about 1,000 hours or more. I would always, always, always advise getting your instrument rating. Um, a lot of people here don't. They tend to go commercial and then flight instructor, and that's it. You're not going to get a job with just a flight instructor. It just doesn't happen anymore. So you have to have an instrument rating. Uh, instrument instructor is even better. And have a great personality. If you're dull, you're probably not going to get a job. <laughs> that sounds really harsh, but a, a personality, a good personality goes a really long way. You have to be able to get along with other people. Bite your tongue when you have to and uh, keep a smile on your face and you'll probably do really well. Okay. Uh, favorite av- aviation books? Actually, it's not really an aviation book, I'd say, but it's um, Jonathan Livingston Siegel, I think is the title. Yeah, Jonathan yep. Livingston Siegel. I love that book. That one's really good. And then... Um, there's another one that I just started reading, which is really good, which is called Flight of Passage. So that's more of an airplane book. I have heard that Chicken Hawk is really good for a helicopter book, but I haven't read it yet. So I don't have a lot of time for extra reading. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, I was lucky. Since since I've had a you know Kindle books and things like that on the uh, on the iPhone, the iPad, I've, I've managed to crack through a few more, and uh, now I get a few audio books as well. So yeah. So what's your favorite one? Look, Chicken Hog is, is pretty good. Uh, it comes uh, highly recommended. Uh, and the one I'm reading at the moment, I'm on my phone, is, well, actually, I'm listening to it. He's a, a San Diego uh, police officer uh, really? in the air department, and it's just great. It's just like story after story of, of the different chases and things they do and, and what they get up to. It's called uh, Catch the Sky by uh, Daryl mm. uh, Kimball, so I'm going to try and track him down as an interview. Uh, but, yeah, I'll... I'll link to that on the on the show notes, but uh, I'm also getting folks to, to send me in there their favourite books, and I'll put together a, uh, a a PDF with all those together, and people can download it off the website. Yeah, very cool. Now you've got a dog, um, Lucy. I do. Yeah, I love Lucy. She's my little co-pilot. <laughs> Most dogs, yeah, don't like flying, like the, the noise. And when I've taken police dogs before, we've had to, you know, cover their ears and things like that. So mm-hmm. Lucy's not uh, not phased. No, she's funny. Um, we did get mutt muffs for her, so something to cover her ears. And uh, she understands that she has to wear them when we're in the helicopter, so she's fine. But she's also flown without them, and she doesn't seem to mind. The biggest thing, I just took her up in the R-22, which I was very afraid to do because there's obviously not much room there. And she kept trying to lay down because that's what she does in the 44. She lays down in the back seat, and she loves it. But uh, 
Yeah, she she couldn't lay down. She could get comfortable. And then she's like, well, I'll just come in your lap. And she's an 80-pound black lab, so it's not like she can just crawl into my lap while I'm flying a helicopter. So, um, But she's really good. She enjoys it. She looks out the window. You know, She'll look down at the ground. She loves it. She's a great dog. Uh, we were always paranoid that they'd um, urinate in the back, and uh, because, because of the corrosion and, and the the metal in between the uh, you know all the metal yeah. parts and stuff, that was our our biggest fear. Yeah, no, she's never done that. She's never thrown up. Nothing. She just hangs out. Just looks around. She's a good dog. Cool. All right. Well, Heather, thank you so much. It's uh, it's just great to to talk to you know folks operating in completely different areas and and hear a little bit about uh, and what they're up to. And look, especially for yourself as a as a company owner as well, you have a, a quite a different uh, perspective on some things too. So, uh, thank, thank you. you so much. Yeah, thank you for, for hanging out and uh, sharing some of your story with us. Yeah, thank you again. I, I really appreciate it. It's, it's been fun talking to you. All right. So, just quickly again, if you can give some contact details, so just your website and uh, I guess your Facebook uh, page, and sure. if folks can check that out. Sure. So it's Independent Helicopters, and the website is independenthelicopters.com. And if you're on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash independent heli. Um, in fact, on most of the social media sites, you can find me just searching independent heli, and I'm on all of them. Tops. Thanks, Heather. Cheers. Thank you so much. I take care. That was Heather Howley of Independent Helicopters in New York, uh, United States. Now just to, if you want to find out a little bit more about Heather's operations and see some photos, head over to the show notes at rotarywingshow.com and look for episode 10. If you enjoy the show and you haven't already subscribed on iTunes, then look, it takes about 30 seconds. It's super quick and easy to do. And if you head over to iTunes and subscribe, you'll get the future episodes pushed out to your phone each week. So just look for Rotary Wing Show on iTunes. And don't forget, I'm still looking for your questions that you want to put to a helicopter company recruiter, and also what you would like to know if you had a chance to sit down with a, a helicopter test pilot. You know, what would you ask them? What would you sort of hit them up on? I'm really interested about the background that goes into creating the information in a flight manual. So let me know via email. Uh, send your questions to feedback at rotarywingshow.com. And look, even better is if you want to be involved in the show, there's a widget on the website where you can actually leave a, a voice question or a voicemail that I actually play on the show uh, to the guest and you can be involved that way. So that's it for today's show. I'm Mick Cullen. You've been listening to the Rotary Wing Show. Have a fantastic week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.